Hello and welcome to the Punch Like a Girl podcast. I'm Nathaniel. I'm Liv. And this time we are doing something we haven't done in quite a while. We actually have a guest. Yay. <laughs> so um, I have the wonderful pleasure of introducing uh, Curtie Van Luling. Um, and we are going to be discussing the graphic novel To Dance, um, which is uh, it, it's artwork by Mark Siegel and it is a memoir of Sienna Cherson Siegel. Um, and before we sort of get into a synopsis and all the rest of it, I think it's probably worth broaching. The reason we brought Curtie on was because you have a background in professional ballet training. Yes. <laughs> Professional-ish. <laughs> professional. Well, I mean, do you want do you want to give up? Professional than we have. Yes, for you, sure. You got more than you got more you than got either of us. Twenty years of training, is it? Essentially, yeah. I mean, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your background? How long? You, um. Yeah. You did so I, it? I started ballet when I was two, I think, um, in like the tots class, the teeny tots class, um, and did ballet up until I think I was eighteen. So it was a little less than 20 years for that. But, um, and then when I moved out to Chicago, I got into, did a little bit of belly dance. I've done some jazz. Never got into tap. <laughs> Although I always oh, wanted I to. Always wanted to, but, <laughs> um, and then I did a little bit of modern, hated that. Yeah, just because I, like I just don't like it. It doesn't work for my body. Um, it hurts too much for my, all of my injuries from ballet. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time spent on the floor in modern, I yeah, think. And I'm yeah. like, I, I don't really, it's yeah, beautiful when it's done right. It can be really expressive and beautiful, but I'm just like, I feel silly. I feel like I'm rolling around on the floor because my body does not move that way. And you know how great I am at floor work. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then I, uh, mostly have done burlesque since then, since 2006. Uh, Eight, two thousand eight. So. so, so you you left ballet eventually, but you basically have never stopped dancing. Right, correct. <laughs> yeah. Again, makes you way more qualified <laughs> on the subject of this a particular book than either of us. Well, even more than Liz, definitely way more than me. <laughs> yes, I, I have I have somewhat I say, of you a took dance ballet background. when you were little. I also did folklorico, so oh, right, ballet right, folklorico yeah. in college. Um, and I did some jazz and tap when I was little too. So yeah. I took karate. That's that's, that's what I was doing. Yeah. I wanted to take karate. Well, that's funny because in hindsight, I wish I'd done dance. So. Oh, I took an African dance class too in college as well. That was fun. So that's neat. Cool. So the this particular book, uh, as I said, it is it is a memoir, and it tells the story of um, Sienna Churson Siegel of growing up initially in Puerto Rico and discovering dance at a young age and sort of, you know, being okay with it, but then seeing a performance of The Dying Swan and being completely enraptured by it and yeah. deciding at a very young age, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. And it sort of charts her journey of you know, very dedicated dancing from a very young age to um, getting involved with City Ballet in New York. Um, and and this was at a time, like she mentions uh, Barishnikov leaving Russia and coming to New York. So that that's the time frame that we're dealing with. Um, and it's a little bit about her home life and it's a bit about the dance and it's a bit about her journey. It's, 
it's not excessively detailed, but it 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 is very much centered on the point the point from which she decided dance was what she loved, basically through um, the point at which she decided she needed to find other things to also supplement her life. Right. <laughs> um, so that it's if that sounds like I, I'm glossing over a lot, and there honestly is not a heck of a lot to synopsize. It's a it is by far the thinnest book we have done. It's, we have tackled a, on here. It's a slight book in <laughs> I, ways. I think I read this in 15 minutes. Yeah, it didn't yeah. take that long. Even with me taking copious notes, it wasn't that long. <laughs> like, oh, you took notes. Whoops. It's a very no, quick no, read. Have to take, I'm, I'm ridiculous but, that way. So, so, sort of what were folks' thoughts just after having finished it and sort of just closing the book 15 minutes after you started reading it? <laughs> um, what were sort of your initial thoughts on it? Um, I... I could relate to certain aspects of it, um, and I think it did tell a lot of aspects of dance and falling in love with dance, and especially as a little girl, being like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, it, the story of Giselle reminded me too, I was like, yeah, there are a lot of tragic stories in ballet yep. where this <laughs> girl does something wonderful for like, or real, like basically something life-ending for someone who doesn't really love her. Like, The Little Mermaid, the real version of that, yeah. is also like that, and I'm oh, like... Oh, Coppelia. Coppelia, yeah. <laughs> like, ballet has got some really tragic stories yeah. going on. Um, so I was reminded of that, and I'm like, oh, ballet, come on. <laughs> um, why are you so sad? You're so beautiful, but so sad. And that being said, it was kind of like a slight book. I was like, I want more, and I was going through my notes because I read it, like, I think over a year ago at this point, and I, I had said, like, I almost wish it was a different format. Like, I want to mm. delve more into certain aspects, like her emotions and, like, the fallout from her parents' divorce and, like, how grueling the training was, and I don't know... I almost wish it had been, like, a memoir with photos instead of a graphic novel. Mm. So, yeah, similarly, I definitely could relate to a lot of it. Um, I did not end up in the New York <laughs> ballet or any, like, professional ballet in that sense. Um, I was with the professional ballet school here in Vermont, um, and um, the Toshu process was definitely something that yeah, spoke to me I, a lot. Yeah, I took, like, about a year of toe, <laughs> yeah. and I remember toes bleeding yep. and, like, cramps and just the pain. The yeah. reason I don't care about how your toes look anymore is because <laughs> of me going through my own point shoe fun. Um, yeah. I definitely think that she talked a lot about how hard it was to train, and that is important, but I think there's a huge aspect missing of this book in the fact of how hard it is on your body physically to train this professionally. She doesn't talk about anything about that. Uh, and there's a lot of issues that I have, and that's kind of why I got out of that world. Um, and that's, yeah, so that was glossed over, I felt like. Um, but I definitely, I know that the whole schooling thing for her is definitely a very big reality for a lot of professional ballet dancers where they have to end up out of their public schools and go to special schools that work with their dance schedule. So that was definitely something that I knew a lot about, but I didn't have personal experience, obviously. Um, I 
thought it ended very abruptly. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> very I was abruptly. At my notes, I was like, my notes end. Oh, I guess the book was over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right then. Yeah. No, it ended very abruptly for me, and it was, and it was kind of like she, she talks so much in depth about her, her coming into finding it. There's this huge, great arc, and then it's all of a sudden like, then I stopped, but I still dance now. Okay, and it's done. Like, <laughs> I remember finishing it and not being entirely sure what to make of it. But I've actually come to like it better the more I've thought on it because, and I have no idea if this was the process by which it was written, but what it feels like is the whole narrative has the feeling of an oral history. It has the feeling of somebody just talking, just relaying their experiences, mm -hmm. not sitting down to write them exhaustively in detail, mm -hmm. but just telling the story of something that they loved. Um, and, you know, hitting bullet points in that, but just sort of breezing along the story of their life in the way that someone who, you know, has lived it and has maybe told the story a few times, but who isn't diving into exhaustive detail. They're right. just, they're, they're going at to what points in their memories are the strongest. So I don't know if this was the process by which it was written, but it feels like she sat down, just t literally told her story, didn't write, told her story, and then there was art given to complement that. Right. Because yeah. that that, that is, actually makes a lot of sense. That's really much the whole <laughs> the whole vibe of it. Because if it was if it was written by someone who like was trying to be an author, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'd have a lot more issue. But what it feels like is it. You know, it has the quality of, of someone giving an interview about their life in ballet. It, it has that kind of sense to it. Now, this is an unusual format yeah. for that kind of story. <laughs> Usually you would get that in an interview setting or in a documentary or if you have relatives, you know, at the table at, you know, Thanksgiving or something like that. So I, it took me a little bit of thinking to sort of land on that because it's not a storytelling style you would expect in a graphic novel format. Once I landed on that, I'm like, I'm kind of, once I settled on that, and again, maybe it's not even intentional, maybe I read it in, but once I decided, like, I think that's what it's going for, I sort of found myself going, you know what, most of the things that I had issues with, pretty much all fall under, that's kind of how it goes when you're just telling your story out loud. Um, and in regards to what you said about it glossing over some things, I think the narrative definitely did. I feel like the art tried to make up for it a little bit because there's a little um, sequence of panels of her getting older with a with a dinner plate in front of her, and the and as she gets taller, so you can tell she's getting older. The amount of food on that plate gets less and less and less and less. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now the narrative doesn't address that, <laughs> no. but I feel I feel like the art is trying to pick up the slack and fill some of the holes mm. that that got left in the and just the telling of the story. Mm -hmm. um, I think similarly with the body damage, because there are images of her wrapping her feet and, you know, you, where you can see the pain, but again, it's not addressed in the words right. of yeah. it, in the actual text of it. Yeah, no, I definitely, I agree that there, there were some things that I was like, oh, I see in the, I don't know, that for me, like, <sighs> I get so grumpy when I think about, like, all of these, I mean, so I recently, I mentioned to you guys earlier that I recently heard an interview with the um, first African-American prima ballerina in the United States on VPR, which is an awesome story if you can find it on VPR's website or NPR's website, one of the two. 
the PR website. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was a great interview. And it was a, she kind of has a similar um, coming into dance the way that um, this woman does. So it it was kind of interesting how they kind of dovetailed with each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they never talk, it's like, they never talk about it. And it's such a huge thing. (laughs) I mean, essentially the, the, the perfect body image for ballet. I mean, I was getting to the point when I was around 18, where I was, my hips were getting too big. My upper body was great because I was pretty flat chested, but my hips were too big and, you know, things were starting to develop in ways that weren't making me stay real thin. There was nothing I could do about it. And I personally didn't encounter anything like that. But um, there were some people who were given negative body images with feedback and personally took upon themselves to become bulimic or not eat um, within my, my classes that I took. And I just think that was awful and that was not what dance should be all about. And I know that's how the professional world is in in ballet, and it's how it's been for many, it's many, many, many years. Competitive, yeah. And, and but I think it's a huge yeah. problem because there's so many beautiful dancers out there who are not the perfect body type that I think could be wonderful. <laughs> I, I have to wonder if maybe part of the reason that um, people who like, it was very obviously like really central or are still doing it and it's a huge part of their life if maybe part of the reluctance to talk about it is because of how much it would require them to, to some degree to tear down the thing that they love and they might just not be prepared to do that yeah that's probably true because I mean I, had, I literally just had to I had to stop it well first I had too many injuries my knees my ankles and my back are all bad now (laughs) um from it and I mean sure my toes aren't happy either but um I don't dance on them anymore but it also was partly because I just I couldn't see my fellow classmates go through this where like I knew looking like looking at myself at that point because I hadn't found burlesque yet um which revolutionized my body image in general but um Woo! <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah. we're pro burlesque. We'll yes. put that on the record right now. Yes, that made me love everything and be like, why? Why does anybody not? Why is anybody told differently? But um, um, but even at that point, like I still had more of a body shape for ballet than my co-dancer that I knew, well, knew through people was bulimic. Um, after being told a very rude comment in a class. Um, yeah, (laughs) it was very frustrating. I remember hearing, I've recently talked to another person who, um, who was with the Boston Ballet Company and just like heard similar stories. Yeah. Her body also started to change and she had health issues and with that, her body changed and like everything that came with and it's it. yeah there's and it's so hard pressure. there's so much pressure because the the woman that i heard the interview with she actually had she broken her ankle i think and she had just gotten this like lead role and so she danced this role with a broken ankle or whatever the injury it was something to do with her foot and she danced the whole like the <coughs> whole show in like severe pain just because she didn't want to lose out on the opportunity and she knew if she didn't, that she would. And that's just like, 
I mean, she's recovered and obviously is still dancing, luckily, but not everybody gets that, <laughs> no. that lucky. Well, you know what's yeah. funny, I'm, and I'm thinking of this now, I think there's actually a lot of parallels to be made between um, certain stripes of, of professional dance, and I think ballet definitely fits this, and say what we're learning about professional sports injuries. Mm-hmm. And similarly, often in both cases, they are aware that what they're doing is wrecking their body, but they love what they do so much. They are willing to shave off X number of lives off the tail end of their life, or quality years at at best, in exchange for getting to live this thing now, which is in a bizarre way really, really, sad but also oddly admirable i'm like right. i <laughs> that, that puts me in a place i don't know how to feel about that like cause you it's not a case of you didn't know what you were doing to your body right you know and you are willing to go through this like that makes me uncomfortable but i also can't help but go power to you i guess no it is it's severe to, i mean like to imagine dancing on a broken ankle i can't even like, I can't even imagine no. that. Like, uh, <laughs> that takes some severe guts. And, like, even just, you know, there are dancers that have been sick and they still perform the whole show and go backstage, throw up in a bucket and go back on stage. Like, I've heard those stories, too. It's just, like, there is some severe dedication and, and love for what they're doing. And, I mean, I it's not that I didn't have that. I just didn't want to torture my body like that. <laughs> um, so well, it is to each their own on that one realize both with like professional sports and with ballet and say gymnasts like how mm-hmm. short that career is yeah if, if you even make it i mean like how many window. people destroy their bodies and never get to even do it at that top level anyway right oh yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. that i mean <laughs> not that I keep going back to burlesque, but that's why I love burlesque because it's accommodating like that. So everybody can do it despite what their injuries, their past, their, you know, even their um, age, even their age. Like, and that's, that's, I wish that, and I know that for ballet, it's not, I don't think it's physically possible to make that necessarily happen on a professional level, maybe because they're, it's so demanding to look a certain way. It's so demanding to be performing a certain way that, I don't know if there's any way to really accommodate as much. I'm not sure there is because the <laughs> yeah. the the things you would have to change would it still be ballet anymore? Probably not. Yeah, no, so, <laughs> it and, wouldn't be. So that's that's. Yeah. So instead, I just sit in the audience, jealous that I never got there, but I knew I couldn't. Like I just couldn't physically or mentally. So, but I, I mean, still love it. That's kind of why <laughs> I laughed. I was like mm-hmm. around twelve. I was just realizing this is just so competitive and like I don't I don't have that level that I need to have to be in this world and like maybe I should find something else and I went into like cross-country running instead which <laughs> is very different but also demanding and it is also yeah it's also stamina quite the calves and the thighs <laughs> So I still have the dancer legs. There's dancer Well, the thing is, like, I've noticed, like, you can tell in, like, once again, we'll just take burlesque as an example. You can tell people who have had other types of dance background and those who came to it without dance background, both of which are completely acceptable. 
Um, but you can tell some people, like when you look at them on stage, I'm like, ah, oh, that person was trained in ballet or some type of dance. Or you can even sometimes, like hip hop, you can really tell, like if somebody can really move in a fluid and, and poppy way, you know, like <laughs> sort of mm -hmm. thing. You can tell, sometimes Isolation tell, yeah, isolations like that. that are really impressive. You can tell they have a background, and then you can tell the people that are like, "Oh my gosh, they came from theater." Like, that's <laughs> the expression, like the yeah. expressions, the emotion, and so it's like you can tell that this passion. Like for me, I bring my ballet passion through into my burlesque because I no longer physically am able to perform or dance ballet the way I used to. So now I utilize it through the type of dance that does allow me to do it. <laughs> So it's a way to express that love in a different way. Of course, it's actually, it's been a while since we mentioned anything from the book itself. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, no, no. The thing was, I, but, I, but I that's didn't. What we kind of, it is a slight book. We were going yeah, to that's, that's the thing. and talk about the passion of dance. And I, I think it's a good jumping off point for that. I, th I think that's the thing. I think that, I mean, to bring it back to the book, I think it's hard to know who to recommend this book too because it's not in depth enough that like if you wanted to know what was going on in ballet in the 80s when this is right, set there's it not a lot about Baryshnikov and yeah it doesn't you don't know who he is you might be like listening to this going Man, yeah there's know. not a lot of in-depth <laughs> detail it's yeah. not something that is going to make someone else passionate about dance in and of itself but it it at the same time it does read so quick I, I, it's hard for me to say that anyone shouldn't read it because, like, it's such a it's such a low time dedication. It's great. It's from my school. Um, <laughs> I was like, I haven't seen it for a while, but I'm pretty sure. And I remember a couple of the kids reading it and who are interested in ballet. A couple of the girls, and it's good. I think for mid elementary. Yeah, I Even, could definitely have seen myself picking this up and going, "Oh, yay! I'm gonna read this." Like ooh, when ballet. I was in the yeah, middle my, of. My like aspiring yeah. dancer. Yes, exactly. So, th so this might be one of those cases where it's... Because usually when we tackle books that are aimed at a younger age group, we're still coming at them, um, or at least I am, from the perspective <laughs> of is it worth reading um, as an adult? And I think this might be the first one where it's pretty firmly... the It's a pretty narrow age range that's going to get the most out of it because once you get older, you're going to expect more meat that, mm -hmm. to the story probably, that this yeah. just isn't going to give you. Yeah, we probably we probably harped a... I know I probably harped a little bit on, like, but and so truncated, and, like, you know, there's so many details that are glossed over, and that's Again, probably what it is coming from an adult as opposed to, like, a 12-year-old. Yeah, and, and it, <laughs> so. does, it does kind of have that quality of someone who was asked, you know, tell your life story, and they kind of do that, you know, around this thing, but they don't have something they're building to. There isn't an end point, and eventually mm -hmm. you reach the point in the story where you go... And I and I just kind of stopped and did other things, and that's right. basically yeah, how the book ends. Literally, yeah. when you were talking about VPR, I was like, "This is an NPR like story core story." Yeah, <laughs> like, it does. It's it's like, just like let's ask you some questions and talk about it and random for a while, and then we're done. Right. No, I think your your point about how it seems oral more like an oral history of, like, oh, this is how I got into it. This is how I fell in love with it. No, I don't do it anymore. <laughs> Which is kind of how I tell people, like, when they're like, oh, you did ballet. I'll be like, yeah, I loved it. I did it for a long time. Hurt myself. Things kind of sucked. So I did, didn't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that, I suspect unless somebody becomes a ballet teacher after that, that's probably the end of many a ballet story. <laughs> and 
and that I didn't do it anymore. No, I don't know if I can level to get to that. That like, yeah, a lot of people who really did feel passionate about it, they'll find another dance that they're passionate about, Mm -hmm. or or performing art of some sort, or performing art, but it won't necessarily. It's not going to be mine, probably. Right. Yeah. No, and I mean, I have I've debated personally, and I don't know. I mean, maybe she. We don't know where she is now. Maybe she does teach now. Like that could be a, definitely a path I could she's see. She's got. She's at the American Ballet Theater. It says um, managing and directing. And oh, so she's working essentially as. And it's her husband actually did the illustration. I was gonna so. say they had the same last name. Or yeah, I figured there name. was a relation, but I wasn't yeah. gonna check because I don't do research. <laughs> even going so far as to read the inside <laughs> of the dust jacket. That That's that is more research than I am prepared to do. I no. I never read the about author. No, I'm horrible at that. It's actually funny at this point. The the I don't do research. It's always been kind of true, but it kind of started out as a shtick. But now it's like no, that's like my thing. I'm planting my flag in that. I will not do research. Dang it. Hey, sometimes you you come up with a different perspective that way. But, (laughs) But yeah, so like yeah, she she found and like that's that's the thing is a lot of people who do do ballet as seriously as she did as semi-seriously because I wouldn't say I was that serious but as semi-seriously as she did because like I was I was at the studio three nights a week for years um every single week and that I mean that's what you did you just your whole life after school was ballet (laughs) so and it was that was what it was and it was it was super fun but um but yeah no like it you eventually get into something related, so, somehow, so either it's managing or, like, I've debated teaching before, but I'd have to teach, like, really young kids at this point, because I'm just, my technique isn't there anymore yeah. <laughs> to teach any, and I, I'm not good. You don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I, my mom teaches little kids ballet, I should say that, um, she teaches little kids ballet, and so, I have helped, I helped her with her classes actually growing up as well while I was taking ballet, and... I'm just no. I, I like teaching adults. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> no, there were there are some very cute and and heartwarming moments that I remember fondly, and some very silly moments. Like a kid keep kept trying to like get out of the classroom, and my mom wouldn't let her go, and she eventually just peed on the floor because <laughs> she couldn't verbally tell my mom why she was trying to leave the class. Oh my so, goodness! Oh, of course, gosh. my mom felt horrible, and then like but the little girl, she just couldn't. Aww. verbalize it she just she kept saying she wanted to see her mom and it was like well after class after class you know so, oh, God. so but but that is one thing like that is um a thing that and i think she talks about it a little bit the discipline that you learn in ballet of like you know yeah you don't leave in the middle of class to go make a phone call or you know no it's not a workshop <laughs> no you're serious i mean yeah i, I could I, that's probably another reason i can never do it now because i'd have to be like i have to pee again i have to pee again <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no i probably couldn't do it right now either because of that but you do learn a lot of discipline and a lot of like self-control and a lot of focus from doing this and she talked i think she talks a lot about that yeah i think that was one of the the more direct aspects of the of the story itself mm-hmm. was was how rigorous it was. Yeah, not necessarily acknowledging the physical toll of that, but right. she, it was pretty upfront about how much it dominated her life and mm-hmm. how, and yeah. how strict it was. And even on a, like, I mean, when I was at 
the Valley Studio that's now professional. It wasn't really professional. It was professional, but it wasn't deemed professional. It, it, that makes no sense. But <laughs> it's the same studio, but they've actually created, like, a company now. Oh, okay. So okay, before, yeah, when I was sense. part of it, it, there was no, like, company. Um, and a company means, like, for those who don't know, like, a, a troupe of dancers that do all of the main parts and are the primary dancers. Um, and there was nothing like that. It was just whoever was oldest yeah. ended up being in those parts. And we, you know, we divided up the, the performances based on that. But now there's actually a company and there's a junior company. And so they've structured it more like a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I say that it was more semi-professional for me because <laughs> I was pre that structure. But now, yeah, it's, I mean, they're there a lot and they have summer intensives where they're there every single day for like three weeks all day (laughs) so and that I mean I did that too I did workshops where I was there all day during the summer for like the whole week and yeah it is intense she definitely she brings that out how intense and life demanding it is and how you do you kind of like I feel like she did kind of missed the whole thing going on with her parents because she was so focused yeah. on ballet and didn't realize it, and then it seemed like it was kind of a shock to her. I think it did some foreshadowing, though. Oh, like, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, but I don't for, think her as the yeah. girl, little girl, knew what was going on. Yeah. And then she's just like, oh, daddy's not here. No, daddy is. <laughs> like, sort of thing. When's he coming back again? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, th- I think we'll wrap up there. I, Cody, I definitely want to thank you for coming on for this, because yeah. this was a dang thin book and we would have had almost nothing to talk about without having without having you on here yeah ramble on about dance but um but as you mentioned you do still dance and now you dance burlesque do you feel like plugging any of that Uh, i mean i know you're kind of you're you're taking a break from it a little bit currently taking a mini break there might be a child on the horizon (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah no um Green Mountain Cabaret was started here in Vermont. It's still going on. Um, it's owned by some of our lovely co-dancers, and um, they're doing a great job running it so that I can not run it and have a child, <laughs> 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 which is lovely and wonderful. Um, but yeah, you should definitely check them out, uh, usually the first Saturdays of every month at Club Metronome. Yep, and that's in but, Burlington, yeah. Vermont, if, oh, you yeah. are, if you are at all <laughs> if local you're listening to yeah, this. Outside of... So Northeast. that was that was <laughs> to dance. It's a breezy enough read that I can't say don't read it, but it's it's kind of a, it's kind of fluffy. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna do a quick promotional break, and then when we come back, Liz and I will do listener feedback. Are you a student wizard looking for hands-on job experience? Has your dark master tasked you with retrieving a magical artifact? Are you a kobold in need of legal representation? Are you having issues with an uppity horse who just needs a good punch in the face? Contact Contact the Von Demos Adventuring Syndicate! We have been foretold. Improvised Weapons is an actual play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons podcast featuring comedians and improvisers in the great state of Vermont. Listen wherever podcasts are found. Follow us on social media at IWVTCast and laugh along to the antics of the Von Demos Adventuring Syndicate. Now, let's hit it and crit it. 
Alright folks, we're going to do a little bit of listener feedback and I'm going to be uh, reading most of these because Liz is recovering from a cold and her voice is... Raspy and squeaky and... It's not too bad, but it was pretty bad this weekend, but there's a little... It's a little bit of a strain. Yeah. So we got quite a bit of feedback, not only on the most recent episode prior to this, which was covering Batwoman, um, but also on some prior episodes. So th this will probably be a little bit longer than usual, but bear with us. So first comment came from Ryan Daly. I think Nathaniel pointed or started to point out the unusual structure of elegy, not eulogy. So there's my apology for mispronouncing that from the beginning. I was wondering about that, but I didn't correct you. <laughs> you should feel free to correct me more often. I'm frequently wrong. I was like, did I have it wrong? No. I'm pretty sure it was elegy. Like, if okay. you find yourself wondering, am I wrong or is he wrong? I'm probably the one wrong. That, that's a safe bet. Anyways, he said the unusual structure of the book is because it collects two separate story arcs. El Elegy, where Batwoman faces off against the Church of Crime and Alice, and Go, her origin story. I agree that it reads a bit unevenly in this sitting. It's even worse considering Greg Rucka only did three story arcs in this run before Batman took over Detective Comics again. The third arc, called Cutter, was only three issues long and saw Bet suit up as, as Flamebird. I don't believe it was ever collected. Within two years, DC's entire continuity was shifted to the New 52 reboot. Batwoman got her own ongoing series with that, written and sometimes drawn by J.H. Williams, but I don't, I don't think it ever developed the Batwoman-Alice connection or even acknowledged it. I could be wrong, though. So it looks like they never properly paid that off. Oh, that's kind of disappointing. It is a bit, yeah. And unfortunately, that sometimes happens with these sorts of things because because they have rotating creators if a creator Writers, yeah yeah if he if and you know they don't always have time to get back to what they set up if they move to another book or get reassigned or what have you and then it's not they have different uh, priorities and interests within that character and yeah unless unless there's an editorial mandate whoever picks up the writing duties after that is under no obligation to pay off what the previous one set up. It's one of the oddities of ongoing comic book story writing. So next up we have a comment from Tim Price. Hi Tim! Hey, we're gonna Tim. be we're gonna be hearing from Tim a lot in this feedback episode. Excellent. He says, well this sounds like an excellent trade. I uh, I'll try to get it in the next Comicsology sale. Batwoman has always interested me since her intro into the 52 Maxi series. I think the Church of Crime was part of her star story then as well. Who says modern churches are dying? Oh, that's terrible. That's not me editorializing, that's Tim himself acknowledging that that was terrible. Um, in regards to you and I pointing out that he has cool kids. One, oh, I know. Two, thank you very much. My wife, an English major, can take credit for their love of reading, and I provide their love of comics and graphic novels. But we let them find their own books, albeit with occasional suggestions, and they continually impress me with their taste. I haven't gotten them to listen to your show yet because, you know, kids, but they stood still long enough to hear this bit, and they lit up like Christmas morning. Thank you again Aww. for making their day. Any other parents listening to the show? I hope so. Um, so, yes. Again, we'll point out again, Tim, you have cool kids. And and if, if we have to keep saying it to eventually get them to listen to the show as a whole, 
We like you. You're awesome. We okay. will pander. <laughs> Listen to us. We're great. <laughs> Pandering. Um, Tim continues. Women superheroes with short hair. You got me thinking about that too much, with the criteria being not touching the shoulders. Besides the ones you mentioned, I came up with Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Wasp. Uh, Roddy Sin Sinclair, a.k.a. Wolfsbane. She didn't always have short hair, though, because she had that weird flat-top afro thing for a while. So granted, it didn't touch her shoulders, but that's because it was up above her head like a foot. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to let you have that one, Tim. Um, Rachel Summers. That's a good question. Like, if it goes... It's still grabbable. Yeah, it's still long. It's just going... It's defying gravity. Yeah. You know? um, his other ones, uh, Rachel Summers slash Phoenix slash Marvel Girl, Jean Grey slash Marvel Girl, current version. I haven't been following, so I guess she's she's rocking the short hair lately. Uh, Zian Koi Man, a.k.a. Karma. Some artists make her hair too long, but it should always be short. And Secret from Young Justice, Shrinking Violet, and Lightning Lass. Most of these are characters I don't know, so I do have to take your word on some of these. The characters with significant periods of short hair, Susan Richards, The Invisible Woman, Cassie Sandsmark, Wonder Girl, uh, Crystal of the Inhumans, and Rogue of the X-Men, as well as Saturn Girl from the Legion of Superheroes. Basically, you can count on the X-Men and Legion of Superheroes to bring the diversity. Um, that's true, because those casts are so huge... And they seem to really like redesigning the outfits, uh, at least for X Men, because I never got Styles, into. Yeah. I never got into Legion, but yeah, definitely X Men. They shake up their looks a lot. Um, okay, so another great episode. I'm almost caught up. Honest, I was feeling bad in the last show with my poor writing tripping both you up. Uh, there's got to be better writers listening to this show. Come on, people, show some love for the punchers. We do a fine job at tripping ourselves up, so do not blame your writing. <laughs> um, well, he also added an additional, he commented on his own comment saying, yikes, that was uh, pretty long. Now you see why Shag only reads excerpts from my feedback. <laughs> it's okay, Tim. As someone who is very long-winded in emails, I completely understand. Um, we had a comment from Sean who uh this is still on batwoman he wrote great episode i'm a longtime listener but a first time caller <laughs> well welcome to the show <laughs> batwoman is one of the great character creations of the 2000s she is smart tough independent and brings a much needed element to the bat mythos her military background in particular opens her to a range of stories not available to the other bat characters I'm so glad that you highlighted the scene where she falls prey to Don't Ask, Don't Tell and is discharged from the military. Rucka and William's willingness to depict this scene adds a depth to Kate's character that stays with me to this day. Yeah, that was that was a really great moment. Yeah, that was a I, again. I really liked that whole elegy. It was it was really good. Um, good storyline. Yeah. Uh, Sean continues. I know that she and Maggie Sawyer almost married in the new 52 series, but I, was all, I will always have a place in my heart for the Kate Renee Montoya pairing, especially if Renee is serving as the question. That, that would be a book I would buy each month. Hmm. Great show. If you're looking for more great female lead characters, I would check out My Faith in Frankie by Mike Carey and Mark Hamill from Vertigo Comics. Great book with an interesting premise. We'll add it to the docket. No yeah, promise don't. of when we'll get to it. This thing is huge. Yeah, we have lots of things. Yeah, we do. It's, it's, yeah, it is kind of insane. 
Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, Ryan Daly added to the uh, short hair strand. <laughs> we, we've cre created quite the query and the trend here going yeah. on. Black Widow has also gone through extended periods with short hair. Also, the more modern version of Hot Girl, introduced in JSA, no longer had hair flowing from her helmet the way the Golden and Silver Age Hot Girl, Hawk Woman did. Not sure if the velvet mask changes the criteria for short hair. If so, you could add Catwoman in the late 80s. Well, Catwoman at the very least knew to cover up her hair. So she had long hair, but it yeah, wasn't it was exposed. So, I mean, I, I would I would count that in this conversation because she's intelligent enough to keep it out of grasp. That's, I mean, I feel like if I was fighting, I would try to keep mine, like, out of the way and tucked away. I would, I would probably be rocking the librarian bun if I was fighting crime. Or a ponytail, a sensible ponytail, not the long flowing stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I'd forgotten about Black Widow because I really hated that outfit that she was wearing at the time that she had short hair. Frank Miller came up with that one. It was not. A, it was not a good so look. So you just blocked the whole look out. I kind of did. The, 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 the whole thing kind of kind of faded. Next up, we had a comment from Chris Franklin. Nice episode. I love J. H. Williams' art on Batwoman. Stunning. Yes, it was. Oh, I'm still not over it. Holy cow. So gorgeous. I'd almost forgotten that Alex Ross actually designed the modern Kate Kane Batwoman originally in a new design for a revived Barbara Gordon in the early 2000s. DC instead optioned to use it for Batwoman, who had literally been sitting in limbo since Crisis on Infinite Earths. Did she exist or not? Would they reintroduce her? She was teased over and over again until we met Kate in 52 after Infinite Crisis 20 years later. Ugh, that is one of the things about DC. Every time they reboot their universe, sometimes you're left sitting around a long time waiting for, okay, this character that used to exist, do they still exist? <laughs> We're going to see them ever again. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is eventually. Sometimes the answer is unfortunately yes. No. Aww. I'm sorry. Some of these characters shouldn't be brought back every time, but they are anyway. <laughs> Superboy Prime. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Oh, and Bet's superhero codename is Flamebird. Pre-Crisis, she was the original Batgirl and was developed as a potential love interest for Robin, so when they needed a non-Bat identity for her, since her aunt was in limbo in the late 80s, they borrowed the name from the Kandorian identity Jimmy Olsen used in the Superman comics while Superman was uh, the original Nightwing. So you had Flamebird crushing on Robin, now Nightwing. Don't you just love comics? The fact that he remembers all this stuff. Confusing at all. No, no. And, and publishers wonder why it's hard to snag new readers. Um, Martin Gray commented on Chris's comment saying, and in the new 52, they changed her name to Hawk Fire. Weird, since we already had a Fire Hawk somewhere. And gave her a horrible new costume, though a Detective Comics issue recently teased Bet coming back with something else. Anyway, terrific episode. I like aspects of the new Batwoman, such as the art, even though the showy layouts separating every two pages into a distinct spread hurt the story flow. Respectfully disagree, but okay. Um, but gave up after the stuff in this book because it wasn't connecting. I just don't get on with Greg Rucka comics. Boy, he loves his tough gals, but it's all so grim. When you grew up with Kate Kane with her purse of gimmicks, pale-faced Kate is hard to take, and that Church of Crime con concept is really dumb. Flowing locks are impractical enough without adding them needlessly. Short hair 
uh, kept under a cowl is surely the only option for a practical soldier type. Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting that a military girl adds, like, flowing locks to her costume and a wig. Though, I mean, again, as a wig, if it gets pulled, it's it just gets gonna pulled off. It's just going to come off. So. And also, in a way, I feel like that almost helps the secret identity because the assumption from anyone seeing her would be that that's her real hair. So anyone <coughs> trying to figure out who is she would be looking for somebody with that hair. Yeah. Which she doesn't. I mean, that's how Black Canary gets away with it, with the fact that she usually doesn't even have a mask. Mm. Um, but yeah, Greg, Ruck, Greg Rucka does tend to do the dark stuff and and it, it's often the case with a lot of these characters um who have been around for a long time that people who read them when they were in the gold or the silver age and more openly goofy it, <laughs> yes. it can be harder to take the transition the sometimes grimdark mm. so uh we also have quite a bit of feedback on some earlier episodes Mostly from Tim Price, but also from some other folks as well. So we'll go on back. And I think Tim's finally done catching up. Go, Tim! Yay! That said, we do encourage anyone to go back to earlier episodes. Yes. And we have some good ones. place comments there. Well, he left a comment on Lumberjanes. Said, this book sounds like a lot of fun. The show keeps adding stuff to my reading list. Excellent. Keep it coming. I know you punchers have lots of books planned. Is Cleopatra in space on the list? I think it is. I know it's in my car currently. I need to get it ready for the kids. and But I, I believe it's on the list. So, yes. it's We are aware of it. It's definitely on the list. I, the thing is, we, we have a list of things we want to get to, and we usually know what the next one is we're doing. We don't have a fully planned schedule for all the stuff on that list, though, probably because it would go depressingly far into the oh future. Oh my gosh, years and years. <laughs> and we are not that good at planning. <laughs> no, no, not so much. Tim also commented on, the, on episode number four, which was Sunny Side Up. Another good episode for a fun book. Like you said, it's a quick, breezy read, which felt like the point. Rather than have tons of narrative text for Sunny's thoughts, which could have meant even more melodrama, she's living as best she can, and her struggles are on the inside. The simplistic, artistic style was just adorable and a good counterpoint to the serious undertones of how Sunny ended up with her grandfather. It makes the story easier to take. With my kids, I took this story as a chance to discuss the situation with Sunny's brother, which I'm sure you agree is best. Mm-hmm. If that was the author's goal, then they did a fine job. Oh, and the comics and the story. Such a such a trip for Sonny to like Swamp Thing. I wouldn't have guessed that choice. Nice. Yeah, you get you gotta respect a Swamp Thing lover. She was very endearing as a character. And it is kind of nice, I think, for those um, because Jennifer Holm also did Baby Mouse. Um, and that if you're transitioning out of baby mouse and you're getting a little older and you want something more serious and a little more realistic drama, I think um, Sunny Side Up and its sequel are a good match as as fans of baby mouse age. Yeah. Um, we also got a comment on episode number two, Nimona, from Nathan Yu. He wrote, Hey Liz and Nathaniel, great episode on what seems like an awesome comic. I found your discussion on shape-shifting as it relates to outward persona particularly interesting. I can actually think of a couple more examples of this in other comics. Firstly, there's Frobisher, a sixth Doctor companion whose favorite default shape just happens to be a talking penguin. Awesome! 
I have not, I do not know this, but I, I approve of penguins always. Yeah, unfortunately Frobisher has not ever appeared in video form, but he is in the comics and I think he might show up in some of the audio adventures. Nice. Um, but I know he's a fan favorite. A second is a Skrull character named Zavin from some of the later issues of Runaways who is gender fluid in the most literal of senses. Did I mention I'm a fan of the Runaways? Yeah, I believe you did in your previous comment. Anyway, great episode, great podcast. Thank you. So Nathan also commented on episode eight for El Defo. Hey Liz and Nathaniel, me again. Listening to your discussion of El Defo got me thinking about how sound is portrayed in comic books it being an all-visual medium, and I've always been interested in how they get around it, possibly why I'm so into audio dramas. Avoiding the onomatopoeia elephant in the room and sticking with speech bubbles, I've seen examples of blank text bubble technique used elsewhere, most notably in a storyline where Hawkeye went deaf, and again in a Doctor Who comic where a technobabble field <laughs> prevented a population from being able to speak. Technobabble field. Yeah, that's they often have those. Anyway, I could go on, but I think I've tangented enough a good episode regardless. P.S. By the way, speaking of said Hawkeye run, I can recommend the L.A. woman trade of it, which focus almost exclusively on the exploits of the female half of the book's duo. And before you say anything, it still counts. Her code name is Hawkeye, too. Um, I was not I, aware of that one. Yeah, I know the character, Kate Bishop, and I do have, again, that's yet another thing that's on the on docket. The docket. I need to re revisit the docket. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, um, we're, we're, we'll probably eventually be touching on how sound gets portrayed in these things again, because one of the other things that we will eventually get to is Black Canary, and I'm kind of favoring the, uh, the rock star version of Black Canary. Ooh, that sounds fun. Um, just because it, it seems like it seems like the best leaping on point as far as her collective stuff goes because she's got a weird history in comics. We might we might have to rope Ryan Daly in to try and explain <laughs> the insanity that is Black Canary's history. <laughs> Sounds um, good. We like guest stars. Yes, we do. As was evidenced by this episode. Yay! Thank you, Cardi. Um, so Tim Price uh, also commented on. Episode 10, Space Dumplings. Aww. This sounds like a quirky, interesting read. Now I'm picturing the author pitching this to a publisher. It's about space whale poop and a rooster that identifies as a chicken. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to note again how fun it is to listen to this podcast. You both bring such different perspective to the material and discussion. Uh, and the discussion between you is so interesting to hear. Thank you and looking forward to more. We've got a couple more from Tim. He commented on episode number nine, which was Ms. Marvel, volume one. Mm -hmm. Ah, Ms. Marvel. This series had so much buzz when it started that I knew I'd check it out eventually. I liked it so much, my girls had to sit through reading it with me. Of course, they enjoyed <laughs> it as well because they're great kids. Yes, I'm a crazy proud dad. Not sorry. As a 100% wasp, you and me both, buddy. Um... I'm in no position to judge if this story falls into stereotype, stereotypes. 
All I will offer is I sympathize with Kamala a great deal. My father was a United Methodist minister, so growing up in a strongly religious household rang true here. What would have been overkill is if for Kamala to be the extra rebellious teenager that some preacher's kids become. Instead, her faith influenced the kind of person and hero that she would become in a positive way. That's a welcome portrayal in today's comics. Another aspect of Kamala is how compassionate she is, helping ordinary people, caring about our neighbors and city, and not wanting to cause wanton destruction as is typical for, super, for superheroes. It harkens back to when William Misner Loeb's did a run on Wonder Woman, where she had to change from being a hero to getting a job at Mickey D's and helping her community as only she can. Didn't know about that one. I might need to look into that, just out of morbid curiosity. Uh, he continues, I don't remember if this is explored much in the first volume, but that's what really set Kamala apart from the other heroes and truly made her Ms. Marvel. Yes, you should read the other volumes just for fun. That's what I mean whenever I suggest that for other series, like Squirrel Girl. Seriously, Liz, you need to read other Squirrel Girl books. I, I do indeed, and I need to get some Squirrel Girl for my kids, because a couple of them know of her already, and I think I have a um, fourth grade student who is really into squirrels um, and chipmunks, and I think she is she is already kind of nicknamed Squirrel Girl by some of her classmates, so I think she would be a big fan of those. Eats nuts, kicks butts. Yeah, she would love that, that so, motto. So we have one last comment, also from Tim. Uh, this one on episode seven for Ghost in the Shell. And now I'm caught up. But what a book to finish on. Hey, they can't <laughs> all be winners. And it's good to sometimes cover those that we uh, those so that we appreciate the good ones. I did take some things away from your discussion. One, I can blame the entire 90s artwork of superhero women on this book. <laughs> I don't think we quite put it that way, but it was, yeah, that art. Uh, number two, Shag would love it. Number three, the plot. The plots. So yes, I'm waiting for new episodes now. <laughs> All uh, right, we better get on that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tim. And of course, as as mentioned, anyone who wants to comment on an older episode, we love getting those. We did have episodes that we did, you know, even before we were on this network, but they're all available here now. So I think we'll wrap it up. Mm -hmm. You can rest and try and recover and not be sick. Yes, that would be lovely. So I'm ready to go and record a new podcast with my shiny, happy, regular voice. Woo! Yes. So that'll do it for this one, folks. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Punch Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production. This show is presented on the Fire and Water Network, and feedback can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at punchlikeagirl1. The theme music is composed and recorded by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye!